Remember when stocks only went down? We do. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show, folks. I am David Hansen, joined by Tyler Riggs. Great to be here. Thanks Tyler, you are part of our banking financial services coverage down mm-hmm. on fool.com. Absolutely. Making your first appearance on Where the Money Is. Hope it all goes well. We'll does see it, how it goes. Yeah. Does it feel good? It feels good. I'm excited. Right. We're going back in time a little bit. Yesterday we had Patrick Morris on. We did not talk about the bull market turning five. Everyone else was talking about it. We decided to focus on the business. Business is normal, but sure. we're bringing it back today. We're going back in time. We're looking at three headlines from March of 2009 just Absolutely. to see what can we learn, what were we wrong about, what were other people wrong about. We like to say that. <laughs> More importantly, what other people exactly. were wrong about. Exactly. Yeah. We, we weren't wrong about anything. <laughs> so going to the first headline, this is from Wall Street Journal on March 3rd, 2009. It says, stocks hit 1997 level, signaling long slump. Now, we were talking about this before, and it's really easy to look back at this and saying, mm-hmm. Well, that's the bottom. Everyone sure, knew sure. that was the bottom, but 2020 hindsight yeah. is always 2020. Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. We, us looking back at these articles today is a little unfair to the actual writers because we know a lot unfair, <laughs> a, really unfair. But you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, we they didn't know at that point that that was the bottom. March 2009, mm-hmm. we do. But I think from reading these articles, from going back and seeing what people were talking about, I think there's a lot of good lessons we can learn there mm-hmm. and a lot of things we can prepare ourselves for in the future because this is not the last uh, you know, dip that's going to happen. This is not the last uh, moment of crisis that the market's going to be yeah. so uh, world-ending. It wasn't the first, and it will be definitely, definitely Absolutely. not the last. And Absolutely. one of the things that stood out to me in that article was, and I'll read a, a quote from it, was, gone are the days where the mantra among investors was, buy the dips, something we hear a lot mm-hmm. today, on the belief that when stock prices fall, they're likely to rebound. Instead, the opposite sentiment has taken hold. Mm-hmm. So basically, everyone's saying, well, we'll buy the dips during a bull market. That, that's what you're supposed to do. But then when you have something like this where stocks are down 40%, yeah. 30%, in some cases, 80% individual stocks, then it, it's a lot harder to say, "Sure, yeah, I'm going to buy the dip. And that stood out to me because Seth Klarman, the... Mm-hmm famous hedge fund manager, amazing track record over decades here, mm-hmm. came out with a letter to his investors, I think it was yesterday or the day before, saying something pretty similar. And here's what he said in his letter. He says, when the market's reversed, everything investors thought they knew will be turned upside down and inside out by the dips will be replaced with, what was I thinking? Mm-hmm. Anyone who is poorly positioned and ill-prepared will find there's a long way to fall. Few, if any, will escape unscathed. So like you said... History will repeat itself. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Seth Klarman's right about the timing here. Maybe we're getting closer to that. Mm-hmm. But good to read these articles and be reminded that this stuff sure. will happen. And I think that the other thing, too, is that all, these articles always say it's different this time. Yeah. Or, you know, it's not – this has changed the, the paradigm of investing. Yep. And it's just not true. I mean, it's just – we can always say, you know, this method doesn't work or, you know, like I said, buying the dip doesn't make any more sense anymore. It's not entirely true. It's just something where people look for answers in times of extreme uncertainty and this is what the articles are produced. You know, this is what we're talking about. Exactly. And, and some of the advice that was given in, we kind of have a second article on mm-hmm. there from Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal, who's, mm-hmm. a, who's a great writer and has given tons of great advice and some of the advice looking back doesn't seem that great, kind of saying, well, you can gradually sell your holdings and move sure, them into sure. bonds. But like we keep saying, it's easy to say that yes, now, knowing yes. that the stocks went on a great five-year yeah, run. Yeah, I, I think the one thing in Jason's article that 
his, a lot of his advice is to pe- investors that were burned by the stock market and seemingly don't want to touch it ever again mm-hmm. in their investing you know, careers. Trying to give them like an easier way out. Exactly, exactly. The problem is, is that those people are the same ones that are going to be, once they see the stock market going up and up and up for five years straight, they're going to be the ones that are jumping back in potentially at the precisely the wrong time. Right. And I think that's the thing there is that you've got to think long-term with this stuff, and everybody's got sort of a selective memory. Mm-hmm. You know, when they lose money, it really stings, it really hurts. But over the years, when you start forgetting about that, when you can basically invest in anything and it's going to go up in the next five years, people start to lose those lessons that they really learned from five years ago. And I think that's the important thing there is that, you know, the cycle repeats itself, yep. and you need to be cognizant of that. All right, moving on to the second headline, mm-hmm. staying back in time, staying in 2009. This is from Market Watch. Winters of discontent, and then the subtitle there is three to six years before investors recoup portfolio losses, advisors predict. Now, you pointed this out to me, three to six years before we mm-hmm. recoup losses turned out to be a pretty darn good yeah. prediction here yeah, from I, advisors, whoever yeah. they surveyed here. When we were looking for articles back in 2009, I thought it'd be just easy, easy, easy mm-hmm. to find all these sort of horrible predictions or just way off base articles. But this one was actually surprisingly interesting because it was, it took about four years for the S&P to recover from mm-hmm. its, or to get back to its pre-crisis high. So I think that was uh, sort of interesting right there to see that advisors were pretty, pretty spot on. I mean, mm-hmm. three to six years, we could say it's kind of a large time frame, but that's still uh, fairly accurate, too. Right, and we, uh, Morgan Hauslund, one of our writers for Fool.com, recently mm-hmm. wrote an article saying, back in 2009, some traders and short-term investors knew that a rally was coming, mm-hmm. but they just couldn't withstand another down month because sure. their compensation, their livelihood is tied to performance, and mm-hmm. if they go into stocks, stocks fall another 10%. That's not going to look very good on them. Absolutely. So what the individual investor has to their advantage is, this isn't your salary job. You're not based on your stock market performance. So you're, not, you're not giving updates to any clients or Exactly. Like so yeah. you have the ability to stay in there and mm-hmm. say, well, I can withstand another month. It, yes, my holdings may go down in value, but this doesn't risk my job here. I'm not going to lose my livelihood yeah, yeah. and everything I have because I hold stocks for another month. So that's a huge advantage Absolutely. that investors can Absolutely. have there. And I think one more thing from that article, too, that we, we noticed is that um, they looked at predictions for the next year. What are advisors doing? Um, and what was very interesting is that in the previous year, 2008, uh, only 9% of advisors said they were going to be buying small cap stocks in the next year. Uh, in this, this article we just looked at in 2009, that number jumped up to 27%. So I, I, right there, it's sort of, I found that really interesting because that is sort of a, one of the first signs that maybe the market might be moving back towards gaining confidence mm-hmm. in stocks is if you're going into... You know, a full third of advisors are looking to go into small cap stocks. Which are quote unquote riskier. Exactly, exactly. So to see that is sort of a small indication of some confidence returning to the market. Maybe something we can look for the next time. The next cycle comes around. Whenever that is. (laughs) All right, final headline from 2009 Arrow. Going to some individual stocks here, we have a couple. It says Citigroup shares fall below $1. And then the other headline is banks hold some gains keeping sector green. Citigroup falling under a dollar is pretty amazing. And if you look at the Citigroup stock chart today, you might say, I don't see it falling below one dollar. And we have to remember that there was the reverse stock split. I believe it was a 10 for one. Yeah, I think so, yeah. One dollar became ten dollars. So if you're looking back at the performance, Mm -hmm. yes, it really did get below one dollar, which is pretty amazing. I think, and I think that's, again, what we talk about when looking back at this stuff, these articles, 
a, a company like Citigroup falling below a dollar, it is extremely tough to sort of keep a long-term perspective on these things when yeah. there's such a sort of a big milestone for a, a huge company like that to fall below a dollar. That's that's frightening, and it's yeah. very difficult as an investor to sort of keep your you know mindset of focusing on the business and not the stock. I mean, yeah. that's that's it's tough. Uh, the second one we had there was alluding to Goldman Sachs and their mm-hmm. their famous conviction buy list, conviction sell list, and they came out with a conviction sell mm-hmm. on American Express and told their clients to buy Morgan Stanley. We have a chart here of the performance since then, and not to, not to poke fun at Goldman too much, but American Express total return is up 740% since that time. <laughs> Morgan Stanley up a measly 60% and lagging the market since that time. So not to, we're not going to make fun of Goldman too sure, much. Sure, uh, they have, their clients have a different interest in mind, but... Just to, goes to show you that their recommendations aren't meant for everyone. Exactly. And again, we are putting that start starting point on that graph at the very bottom. Right. So, I mean, if you perfectly timed it, you'd have that, you know, 756 or whatever percent it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, like you said, the important thing to remember is that these forecasts, it's easy to use those as a shortcut with investment, but you got to remember what's their time frame? What are they looking at with this stock? Are they holding it for you know, five to ten years or indefinitely because they believe in the business? Or is it more that they're selling it because they don't like the outlook for the next year? Probably closer to the the next year. Exactly. And I think that's the important thing as an individual investor is to know, do you believe in this business? Do you think American Express is a good business? Is it something where you should be concerned then about the stock price over the next year? Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Well, Mm -hmm. Hopefully we hopefully we don't have something like that come around next sure, time, but it sure, will, sure, and we'll address it here. <laughs> and then I'm sure people will look back and make fun of us. Absolutely. All right, moving on to the focus for today. One of the investors that you like to learn from, we always talk about Warren Buffett on here, mm-hmm. Charlie Munger, guys like that. One of the guys that you focus on is Joel Greenblatt, who he's not as flashy mm-hmm. as Buffett. He's kind of under the radar. He's sure. written some books. Uh, but he uses something he calls the magic formula, which mm-hmm. is basically a screen uh, for companies that have high returns on capital, that are basically trading at a discount to mm-hmm. kind of what they're actually worth. And he just very mechanically buys the ones that are undervalued, sells the ones that are overvalued. One of the caveats to his magic formula is you can't use it for financials. Exactly. And on this show, we talk almost exclusively about financial companies mm-hmm. here. But something that you've been playing around with is what if I wanted to create a magic formula for financials, yeah. what would I look at? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are the, some uh, some of the metrics and key themes that you've been looking at in this? Sure. So I think one of the big things about the magic formula, which I, why I think it's so powerful, um, is the fact that it sort of removes the emotional part of investing. You know, you're focusing, like you said, on return on capital for businesses. So are they just good businesses? Are they returning a lot of money for each dollar invested? Mm-hmm. Um, and then their earnings yield, are they trading at a discount? If you just take those two simple key uh, metrics, you can sort of find those solid businesses that are trading at a discount. And like you said, just sort of methodically buying and selling those as they pop on the list right. and as they fall off the list. So with, with banks, uh, with financial stocks, uh, it's a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Um, banks in particular, you can't obviously just look at sort of profitability and discount. We want to look at, are these solvent? Are these going to be safe banks to invest in in all sorts of environments? And because think, like we just said, there will be more cycles. Exactly, exactly. And I think what's great about trying to figure out a magic formula for the banks is that we've sort of got the best stress test possible 
uh, you know, in the past five to seven years. A real stress test. Exactly. A real stress test. You can actually see in the financials who overextended themselves leading up to the crisis Mm -hmm. and paid for it, and who were the other banks that were maybe less flashy, uh, less sexy, that just kind of continued doing their basic, you know, core business, staying within their circle of competence, and survived and did well because of it. Um, So with that, I sort of try to pick sort of three key things I want to look at when I'm analyzing a bank. Uh, Profitability, financial health, and credit quality. So profitability, for instance, I've been looking at a metric. It's called pre-tax, pre-provision earnings. Mm -hmm. Basically trying to sort of distill the bank's business, what money it's making before doing all sorts of adjustments. All the credit stuff. Exactly. Sort of... I'd sort of compare it to sort of a, uh, a free cash flow for normal businesses, mm-hmm. trying to get to what money is or what cash is the business generating. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got profitability there. Um, connected to that then is financial health, equity to assets. I want to see um, as a pro- equity as a proportion of assets, is that number staying pretty high and is it staying fairly stable? Are they... Does it look like they have discipline in maintaining a high level of equity? Right, which, which is important because you can make profitability look really good mm-hmm. by taking on a lot of leverage, especially yeah. in the banking business Absolutely. where leverage is inherent. So you want to have the healthy level and, like you said, keep it consistent. Exactly. And then finally, uh, profitability, financial health, and the, the last one is credit quality. Right. Are they actually originating things that are going to perform well? Which is optimal. Exactly. So I think a lot of times you see profitability go up, credit quality go down, um, and then financial health eventually suffers as a result. What we're trying to do here is take all three of those and just kind of find that that steady balance between the three um, to kind of find these these companies that are, you know, these banks that have been doing solid business for a long time. And again, the most important thing to hear too is that we're looking at all three of these metrics over 10 to 15 years, something where we can look at different interest rate environments, different economic climates, things like that to kind of gauge what they're doing over those different cycles. Right, because it's really easy to look good in a very short period of time when when the credit cycle's on the upswing. Mm -hmm. Your credit quality's going to look really good, but looking back at 15 years, you can see, all right, how did they actually do in that that time frame? Mm -hmm. And is this probably better for kind of a smaller vanilla bank, one that doesn't have an investment banking arm, a trading Mm -hmm. operation. Are you kind of looking at this as, all right, I just want to see a commercial bank that takes in deposits, makes loans, and is more of a traditional bank? Yeah, so this is definitely something where we've got to be more of the vanilla, you know, community banks. Uh, Definitely when I first did this screen, I was seeing banks I have never heard of, I would never encounter in my life, ones in you know, southeastern Oklahoma, things like that. Just yeah. really tiny, tiny banks. But they're quietly doing a really good job. And I think that's the important thing is that their business is understandable as much as a, as a bank's business can be. They're not getting into a lot of investment banking, a lot of that black box stuff where it's hard to analyze. It's hard to figure out are they, you know, profitable because they're making sound investments or are they just making riskier, taking on more risk right. and uh, might pay for it in the future. All right. Good stuff. Yeah. All right, moving on to the mailbag. Let's get to the mailbag. All right. We have an email address. It's WTMI at fool.com. I love questions. Tyler loves questions. I do. Matt's I in Costa Rica. We can still forward him the, qu- sure. the questions. He sure. can get them. He'll read them on the beach. Our first question today is from Justin. He says, you have mentioned a few, on a few podcasts that the government would like to wind down the operations of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The wifey and I are looking to purchase a home soon. So is this so this is near and dear to me in the moment. 
As such, I've been in contact with several lenders. One of them told me that all conventional loan products are sold to Fannie and Freddie. I couldn't find anything to corroborate this, only that standard conventional loans that conform to the federal requirements are able to be passed through to Fannie and Freddie. But the question remains, for me anyways, what happens to the lending process should Fannie and Freddie be shut down? Mm-hmm. Tyler. Big question. What's going on? Should Justin be concerned with his house buying process? Sure. So I would just address the fact that the Fannie and Freddie shutting down, it's, this, that's not really going to happen. There's mm-hmm. no way to move that um, trillions and do- of dollars of loans to another uh, entity overnight. Yeah. It's going to be a long process. Um, it's been a long process, and I think it's still got a lot of ways to go. I think it's something where um, Mel Watt, the FHFA director, which is the organization that's basically overseeing Fannie and Freddie yep. and sort of guiding this, you know, one of the biggest financial reforms ever, uh, he's been in the office in position for less than 100 days. So if you're thinking about getting a mortgage soon, you probably don't have too much to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one thing you might want to be worried about more than Fannie and Freddie shutting down is just interest rates. That's going to be something that's going to directly affect your borrowing costs. Mm-hmm. And it's something where you know that is much more uh, – we're able to see that a little bit more into the future than uh, Fannie and Freddie reform. But yeah. to the borrower, anything going on in the secondary mortgage market right now is really not going to affect – uh, Justin, that much. Yeah. Um, it's, I think it's, like I said, just something where it boils down to uh, the interest rate that you're paying. And, and the first part of his question when he says, in terms of Fannie and Freddie buying the mm-hmm. conventional loans, it's kind of a, it's kind of a nuanced answer. There's some, yeah. It's kind of a, a wonky answer, if you will. Sure. So, sure. yes, Fannie and Freddie do take on most conventional loan mm-hmm. products. Most banks do not hold a... 30-year mortgage that fits the, the federal requirements, as, yeah. he, as he says there, on their books. Some do, mm-hmm. uh, but most give those to Fannie and Freddie for some sort of compensation, whether it's cash, securities yeah. that come back uh, from Fannie and Freddie. But Fannie and Freddie take those securities, make mortgage-backed securities exactly. to keep the liquidity flowing mm-hmm. into the process. So that's kind of kind of the answer. Yeah, I, think, I don't want to get too into the weeds. Exactly. Here. Let's just say basically... Almost, I think almost all loans are conventional. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them weren't in the past because they were going to private secondary yep. mortgage market players. All, pretty much all of those have you know, kind of gone kaput. Mm-hmm. So a majority of almost all of the loans are going to probably be going to Fannie or Freddie. Yep. In some cases, the, the banks might decide to actually keep them on their portfolio. Right. Um, but that all depends on the lender itself. But yeah, it, it's, it's a nuanced answer. And I... I we don't need to get down in the nitty-gritty. And, and well, the loans that will be kept on the book, a lot of them will be, quote-unquote, jumbo loans, which yes. don't fit the requirements there that are bigger exactly. than what Fannie and Freddie can handle. So if you look at a Wells Fargo, they'll look at some jumbo loans sure. uh, from some of their higher net worth California clients and, and like say, that. okay, yeah. we're going to hold these on our books. That makes sense from mm-hmm. a client relationship. So those are the type of loans that you usually see on the books. Exactly. Banks. All right, we have another mailbag question. All we got right. a two for today. This one is from Jesse in Denver. He says, I listen to the show every day while doing the dishes. Can you each name three investing chores that you do in the upkeep of your investing portfolios? Give Jesse some chores. He doesn't have enough to do. Sure, sure. There we go. So um, my first chore, I would say, is uh, keeping up and maintaining a buy and sell journal. Mm -hmm. So basically, the day I buy a stock, um, I want to make sure I have sort of in one sentence why I'm buying that. 
You know, it doesn't need to be a full thesis or a full report or anything like that. It's just sort of so I know what, the reasoning why I was getting into this doc um, because. Again, emotions can take over in terms of, you know, the price might dip of the stock 10% or more, something like that. I want to make sure I'm going to be able to go back, look at my thesis and say, has that changed? Yeah. If it has, if it no longer applies, then maybe it's time for me to get out of that stock. If not, then it's, it helps me sort of say, okay, maybe it's time to dollar cost average or just mm-hmm. sit put with this, but sort of, uh, you know, keep my sanity, I guess, as, you know, the stock market goes, you know, wildly right. up and down. Good point. Yep. You want to go back and forth? Sure. Why not? All right. My first one is investigate the soft, the soft stuff. Okay. So we can get into the numbers. We talk about valuation, all that stuff. But mm-hmm. sometimes I like to just go through the companies that I, I'm invested in and read about the management. Sure. What are they doing? What have they been saying in conference calls? What mm-hmm. have they been saying at conferences? What's their past? Yeah. But if, if it's a company that I know a little bit about the management, but when I bought the stock, I didn't fully do an entire research report sure, sure. project on the management. I'll go in and try to learn something different about them. Mm-hmm. What are their experiences? Where could they possibly take this company? So yeah. that's one of my. I think that's a great one. I think it's also something where too, you know, there are things where you can just look at the company presentations mm-hmm. over time. That's another way to kind of look at the soft stuff. See what they were talking about, you know, five years ago. What were their exciting projects they were putting together? And did they actually do it? Did they actually do that, or are they just kind of quietly not talking about it yeah, anymore? Yeah, exactly. It's a great one. So my second is, um, so it's sort of a chore. I would say it's always to have some sort of investment book on hand, mm-hmm. um, uh, either investment or behavioral finance or just sort of a biography. I think those are all valuable things to have. Um, and I try to basically do some sort of that reading every single day. I think that's important because it's one of the best ways to tune out that noise that you see in all the news every day. You know, it's sort of, it can be very easy to get caught up in those things and very easy to sort of get really stressed out about what's going on in the markets. Yeah. So I think the best way to just sort of step back is to, you know, read uh, Ben Graham's security analysis from 1940. Right. He's talking about stuff that is entirely applicable to today. Yep. You know, he was talking about post the Great Depression, but it's the same lessons that need to be applied today. Right. Something like that is great just to sit back, get away from the TV, get away from, you know, the Wall Street journals, the all the tickers and everything and all your portfolio movements and just kind of tune out that noise and focus on the long term. Get Good some point. perspective there. All right, my next one is try to learn something new, whether it be something important to the thesis mm-hmm. or just something completely random sure. about the company, crack open the 10K mm-hmm. or, the re- or a recent presentation and just try to learn something new, whether Absolutely. it's a, a, a segment that com- is 2% of revenue, mm-hmm. you still know it's there. It just gives you a fuller picture of what they're trying to do. Sure. So learn something new is something that you can just randomly do at any time. And that's great because that's stuff that you don't give up after yep. learning it. Mm-hmm. That only, you know, Buffett's one of his... You know, nice little buzzwords is, you know, compounding knowledge. Yep. You know, by doing that, you might not find anything interesting, but you might also just gain some experience or some wisdom there that could help you in the future. And right. I think that's that's great to uh, – that's a great chore. Wish final one. On list. What do you got? Uh, my final one is, I guess, a chore in some sense. It's not looking at my portfolio on a regular a basis. A chore of not doing something. Exactly. I wish there were more of those. That's <laughs> kind of nice. Um, by not doing this – I don't want to be looking at my portfolio every single day, um, especially it seems like every time right after you buy a stock, it's going to go down for about you know a month or two. And I think that's important kind of going with my second one where it's just gaining that perspective and not letting yourself get caught up in the day-to-day you know, vacillations of the market. 
I'm investing for the long term, so I need to make sure that I'm not gauging my progress or my performance on the short term. Good point. All right. My final one, this is, this is a harder one to get yourself to okay. do. So I'll admit, I don't, All right. it's hard for me to do this. But when we go out and try to find stocks to buy, we always do our, our analysis. We have our valuation, mm-hmm. whether you modeled it out or whatever method you use. Yeah. You do that when you buy it, right? Mm-hmm. Every, everyone should do that. Sure. But then going forward, you need to redo that on occasion Absolutely. and see if the valuation still makes sense going forward. So if you buy a stock with the expectation of, okay, I'm expecting based on my calculations, I'm hoping for 15% returns. Yeah, yeah. And then two years later, if you do it, and your assumptions have changed, the valuations change, and it says, okay, going forward, this now only gives me 6% mm-hmm. a year. That may not make sense to own that stock anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to do revaluations mm-hmm. of your portfolio and kind of say, does this valuation still make sense going forward? Because holding a stock is essentially the same thing as buying a stock yeah. going forward. So yeah. that's something that it's hard to do because you're in, in your head you're kind of like, I already did the valuation. Exactly. It's fine. It doesn't yeah, matter yeah. anymore. You're committed to the stock. Exactly. Now, so, but yeah. today's valuation is important. As I well. think that's that's really important. I think that's something I I would want to you know improve on too mm-hmm. because it is something where you know especially if you're projecting any sort of cash flows out in the future, you should probably be adding in the real data yeah, that yeah, you're exactly. getting as it goes along. So exactly. That's great. All right. Finishing off on the Twitter sphere, one tweet for today. Okay. Our one and only tweet. It is from Spencer Raskoff, the CEO of Zillow. Friend Uh-oh. of the fool. He says, bought some Bitcoin this morning. Buckle up. <laughs> Tyler, oh, why man. have you not converted your entire savings account to Bitcoin? Oh, man, I don't know. Is it on the list just, of things that I'm do? just too boring, I guess. I don't yeah. know. I just, you know, like I said, I, I'm just doing too much reading, I think. There you go. Just, no cryptocurrency books? No. I, I don't think any have come out. They're probably all e-books at this point. I like the physical books, so exactly. I'll wait till I can uh, get it on Amazon. But. Well, Matt and I still own, on behalf, well, the fool owns yeah. on behalf of us. Point one two Bitcoin. Okay. Planning on holding it, I guess. Excellent. We did it for a project, but we're still we're still holding on to Excellent. it. Excellent. We'll see what happens. Good to hear. All Good right. luck with that. That is the show for today. You can find us on Twitter. We are at TMF Financials. You can also email us, WTMI at fool.com. We'll see you tomorrow. All right. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.